This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 5, Shantanu and Sons. I'm pretty excited about this episode, because we finally get the main story underway. I must confess, however, that I am skipping one story to get there. It is about a king named Yayati. Yayati is the common ancestor of both Krishna and the Pandavas, so I'll use that as an excuse to save his story for when I get into Krishna's birth and childhood. Yayati's tale comes right after the story of Bharata, but actually takes place much earlier in time. I imagine that its role in the epic is mainly the same as that of the tale of Bharata. It tells us about one of the founding fathers of the dynasty. In terms of nomenclature, the heroes of the story are identified by three founders. The first would be the dynasty founded by Puru, who was Yayati's son. Thus, our main characters are sometimes called Paravas. The second name for this dynasty is Bharata, whose founder we met in the last episode. And the final name, which is used most commonly, is Kuru, from which we derive the name Karavas, or descendants of Kuru. Kuru was a descendant of Bharata and ancestor to the main characters in the story. Kuru's main claim to fame was that he recovered the kingship of Hastinapur after his people were driven out by the neighboring king of Panchala. Thus, the 100 sons of Dhritarashtra are often referred to as the Karavas. Before I get started with Shantanu, I would also like to comment on the last episode about King Dushanta, Shakuntala, and their son Bharata. It is strange that despite Bharata's significance, after all the book is named after him, he plays a very minor role in it. In fact, other than the vague description of him conquering the world, the only detail we get about him is this sordid little story about his birth and legitimacy. Now I imagine most kings act like jerks on occasion, but Dushanta comes across as a real prick, and his son Bharata is just a cardboard cutout representing powerful kingship. One of the great things about this epic is that the main characters have real depth to them. You can examine their actions and motivations from many different angles and always come up with new vistas. This is definitely not the case with Bharata and I find that surprising. In any case, the characters that really matter begin with Shantanu, his wife, and his sons. So now things are getting interesting. The Mahabharata always steps back to take a run at things, and the story of Shantanu is no exception. It actually starts before he was born, with his father Pratipa. Unlike the other kings we've seen so far, who are mostly compulsive hunters and warriors, King Pratipa lived like a monk or a yogi. He spent years by the bank of the river Ganges in prayer. One day, as he sat there, the goddess of the river assumed the form of a woman and sat on his lap specifically his right thigh. The chaste king simply asked what she wanted. She replied that she desperately wanted to make love to him right then and there. She insisted that it was a man's dharma never to deny a woman who asked for his services. But this king was too pious for that. He pointed out that she had sat on his right leg, a spot reserved for one's children. Had she sat on his left leg, which was for lovers, then that would have been another matter. But alas, he could only consider her as his daughter, and to make love to her would be sinful. He suggested that she should instead hook up with his son. He didn't even have a son yet, but the goddess Ganga consented, only stipulating that the boy never question her actions no matter what. Then she left to await the birth of King Pratipa's son. Though old and chaste, the king managed to have three sons, Devapi, Shantanu, and Balika. The oldest son Devapi, while still a child, decided to outdo the old man in holiness, and he left for the forest to become a hermit. This begins a pattern that we'll see in each of the coming generations. The first son is passed over and the kingship is given to the next in line, which in this case was Shantanu. As for Shantanu's younger brother, Balika, little more is heard of him. 
There's a passing reference that he had helped his brother in warfare, but he must have died childless because his descendants never intruded on the questions of inheritance that came later. Chantenu was truer to his caste than his father. He spent his time hunting instead of praying, and when he encountered a beautiful woman along the banks of the Ganges, he didn't even bother checking whether she had an acceptable pedigree. He wanted her now. This woman was, of course, the same goddess of the river, Ganga. She told him she would be his queen, but only on the condition that he never question her actions, never stop her, and never criticize her. The excited king immediately agreed to her terms, and the two of them entered a period of conjugal bliss. Things went swimmingly for the two of them until she became pregnant. The king was delighted when she gave birth to a fine son, but horrified when, as soon as she was able, she took the infant to the river and drowned him, saying, I do you a favor, as the child gasped its last breath. Remembering the hasty oath he had sworn to her about keeping silent, he tacitly tolerated this act of infanticide. Amazingly, this pattern repeated itself six more times. His wife got pregnant, gave birth to a perfect son, and then drowned him in the river. Finally, Shantanu could take no more of this, and as she took the eighth child to the river, he broke down and stopped her before she could kill the boy. He violated every stipulation in their agreement. He asked her, Who are you really? How could you commit this horrible crime yet again? Stop this, you evil woman. He even forcibly stopped her at the riverbank. The goddess turned to him and said, You shall keep this eighth son. She then explained that these sons were the reincarnation of the eight Vasus, who had been cursed to be born in human form. There are actually two versions of this story. The first version says that the eight immortals, called the Vasus, had once accidentally disturbed a powerful holy man. This sage impulsively cursed them to live a life as mortal human beings. In order to mitigate the disaster as much as possible, they begged Ganga to take human form and give birth to them, and then to set them free immediately. Ganga argued that it would be cruel to the human father to take away all his sons so young. So the eight Vasus consented to each leave a portion of themselves in the soul of the eighth child and leave him to live a full life. That version of the Vasu's curse was given as an aside during one of the lengthy genealogies. When we hear the full story of Shantanu and Ganga, her explanation is a little different. In this case, she tells Shantanu that the eldest of the eight Vasus, named Diaos, was enjoying the heavenly realms with his divine wife when they came across a fantastic cow. This was a really awesome cow. Good-looking, nice tail, nice face, and full of milk. Diaos's wife told him that she'd heard of this cow, and that a drink of its milk could grant one 10,000 years of life. She said, You see, I have this friend, a mortal princess, who could really use a drink of this milk. Would you please bring me this cow so we could help her out? Diaos was truly smitten by this lovely woman, so he eagerly got his brothers together, and they did as she asked. Unfortunately, this cow was owned by the great Rishi Vasishta, and this guy was pretty upset to find out his most excellent cow had been stolen. He had divine sight, and so he knew immediately who the culprits were, and he cursed them all to be born as mortals. The Vasus soon learned that they were in a lot of trouble, so they went to Vasishta to see if he might soften the blow. The sage relented slightly, saying that seven of them would only be forced to live one year among us mortals, but that their ringleader, Diaos, would be cursed to live a full term on earth. Vasishta predicted, Diaos shall live a long time in the world of men by his own will, but he shall bear no offspring, he shall become a law-abiding mortal, expert in all weapons, and devoted to his father, but he shall forsake the pleasure of women. The boy's name was Devavrata, 
but he is more famously known as Bhishma. As soon as she finished explaining her actions, Ganga disappeared, taking Bhishma with her, leaving Shantanu by the riverbank, astonished and aggrieved. An interesting aside here is that the god Dyaus is the Sanskrit version of the name Zeus. You can see that by this time in the Hindu pantheon, Zeus has really gotten a demotion. He used to be known as Indra's father, and his consort was Prithvi, who was the earth mother, and the two of them founded all of creation. But in this book, his wife is just a flighty nymph who's not even named. And as for Dyaus, he has sunk so low that some obscure rishi is able to curse him to life as a mortal. Of course, it's never safe to mess with Hindu sages. So the goddess Ganga and her son Bhishma both departed for the higher realms and left Shantanu to return to his regular pursuits, which was mostly hunting. This he did for many years, until one day, while hunting along the banks of the river, he saw the water level rapidly dropping. He looked further upstream and saw the river was blocked by a flurry of arrows. The archer was a divine-looking boy who shot the arrows so quickly that he was somehow able to dam up the river and literally stop the flow. After a moment, Shantanu recognized the boy as his own. As soon as this thought occurred to him, the boy disappeared. Shantanu called out to Ganga, and she appeared before him with the boy. This is one of my favorite scenes in the Indian television series about the Mahabharata. The special effects are fantastically primitive. Made entirely out of bottling clay, the river is obviously no larger than a few gallons of water. If you're interested, you can watch this series with English subtitles on YouTube, but at 90 episodes, it is quite an endeavor to stick it out to the end. Now, I'm not quite sure the symbolic meaning of this incident. Why is the boy firing arrows into a manifestation of his own mother? Maybe it was only meant to be seen as a great feat of arms and nothing more, but it still strikes me as strangely symbolic of something, but I'm not sure what. Having been called out by Shantanu, Ganga delivered up the boy Bhishma. She told Shantanu that Bhishma had been fully trained in the Vedas, in government, and in warfare. He was a perfect Kshatriya prince. Shantanu brought the boy home with him, and of course everyone was delighted with this flawless heir to the throne of Hastinapur. What could possibly go wrong? It appears that young Bhishma just stepped right in and took over the reins of government for his father, who wasn't really interested in that kind of stuff anyway. All Shantanu really wanted was to get back to hunting as soon as possible. So, while Bhishma was slaving away at the reins of government, his father, the king, was out in the forest again. Sometime later, while out on the chase, he came across an indescribably sweet fragrance. He wandered around seeking the source of that aroma, and it drew him to the banks of the Yamna River. There he met a girl who belonged to a local tribe of fishermen. She was as beautiful as a goddess, and her name was Satyavati. The same Satyavati we met in episode 3, who used to smell like fish. Shantanu was smitten by this girl, and so he approached her father, the king of the fishermen, and asked him for her hand in marriage. The wily old fisherman, clearly of a lower class, objected, saying that while he would be delighted to have his daughter marry such a fine king as himself, he must insist that she not only be queen, but that she should also be the mother of the crown prince. The old peasant bargained hard, pointing out that this marriage would be impossible, seeing as how Shantanu already had such a fine son already in line for the throne. Thus, dejected, Shantanu returned to Hastinapur and moped around. Bhishma did not fail to notice that his father was lost in his sorrows, and asked him what the matter was. He said, We have peace with all our neighbors, abundant harvests, and happy subjects at home, so what could be the problem? The old man dressed up his desires the best he could, explaining that while everything was fine, 
having only one son was just not good enough. He owed it to his nation to have some backup in case something should happen to Bhishma. He cited wise men and the Vedas, saying having just one son was as bad as having no sons at all. Now, I tend to think of Bhishma as one of those passive-aggressive types who take their extreme piety and virtue and whack you over the head with it. In this case, not satisfied with his father's answer, he investigated the matter some more, and this led him to the Fisher King and his fragrant daughter. It seems Bhishma already had something in mind, because when he went to meet this fisherman, he brought his father's senior advisors along with him, presumably to be witnesses. The Fisher King repeated his demands to Bhishma, and Bhishma tried to solve the problem by swearing an oath. He said he would forsake the throne and favor Satyavati's offspring. The fisher replied that this was all very noble of him, but it wouldn't do. After all, once Bhishma became a father, competition for the throne would be unavoidable. So Bhishma swore a second oath, with the senior nobility as his witnesses, that not only would he give up his claim to the throne, but he would also never marry nor ever have any children. This incredible act of piety and renunciation echoed through the higher realms. In the sky, gods and apsaras gathered round and showered him with flowers, saying, He is Bhishma, the awesome one. At this, the fisher agreed, and Bhishma loaded up the girl and headed back to Hastinapur. As Bhishma delivered the happy girl to his father, Shantanu was so pleased that he granted Bhishma a boon that he would be able to choose the time of his own death. We are not told what authority Shantanu had by which he was able to grant this boon, but it is an important fact about Bhishma that he would not die until he himself willed it. In the course of his marriage with Satyavati, Shantanu fathered two more sons, Chuchangada and Vichitravirya. While both boys were still children, Shantanu died, leaving Bhishma as regent and Satyavati as queen mother. In the next episode, we'll see how Bhishma and Satyavati deal with the crisis of fertility in the Bharata dynasty. It will become increasingly clear that Bhishma's extravagant act of filial piety will result in an unmitigated disaster for the Kuru dynasty. In fact, after we have reviewed the entire tale, you will look back and see that this one act, that seemed to be done purely out of selflessness and love, was precisely the decision that resulted in all the tragic destruction that would eventually follow. We shall see that it was a son's love for his father, and then a father's love for his son that led directly to the brutal civil war and eventual decimation of the Kshatriya caste. Thanks for listening.